good evening and thank you for joining us on this election eve special designed to be a welcome break from political news and polls and all the ads that we've been suffering through the last few weeks during this campaign season we've heard about all the many issues that divide us as a nation but tonight we're going to have a lot of fun and we're going to discuss the one thing that brings us all together that we love our dogs. In fact, at the World Affairs Council, our uh, human resource director, Martha Powell, um, when she interviews people, you know you can't ask them whether they're married or anything like that. Do they have children? But you can say, do you have a dog or do you have a cat? And you'll find at the World Affairs Council that all of us love our dogs. In fact, right there in this picture is my dog, uh, Maddie. I want to remind everyone that you can purchase a copy of The Art of Training Your Dog by going to our good friends over at Interabang Books. Just go to interabangbooks.com and uh, order The Art of Training Your Dog or any books that you might put in your shopping cart and you can get a 10% discount by just typing in the code DFWWORLD. Tonight's program is sponsored by the Friends of the Monks of New Skeet. You know, I bet all of you have had this experience. Uh, you can go to the dog park and you don't, you don't hear Trump or Biden. You just hear fetch or good boy. And uh, it's certainly a nice way to make friends and to spend time outside. And while it's very hard to find any good to say about the COVID pandemic, but one has been seeing an increase in pet adoptions and people walking throughout our neighborhoods. Um, my friends know that in my spare time, I compete in agility and obedience trials. Uh, so I have been especially looking forward to this program. Um, at our local dog park, uh, Maddie enjoys playing with a special German shepherd by the name of Cleo. And I learned that Cleo came from the New Skeet Monastery. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Uh, Brother Kiss Christopher Savage is the New Skeet Prior and director of their dog training program. He made his life prof profession to the Eastern Orthodox Monastery, New Skeet, in 1983. And he was then asked by the monastery to serve as a priest, was ordained in October of 1995, and became a prior in January of 2014. While at New Skeet, he was asked to head the dog training program and over the years has become a world-renowned trainer. He's the principal writer for the monks of New Skeet, including many of their books about their canine friends. Uh, we're also joined by his co-author, Mark Goldberg. Mark is a certified dog trainer. He's the past president of the International Association of Canine Professionals. And he's been working with the monks for about 15 years using his signature force-free method. Gentlemen, just wonderful to see both of you. As I said, I've been looking forward to this program. So welcome. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. <laughs> Thanks so much for having us, Jim. Good. So tell us, you know, just I, I guess I should ask you this, Brother Christopher. How did the New Skeet Monastery get involved with training German Shepherds or other dogs? Okay, I'm going to give you the very short edited uh, session probably, uh, go on for a long time. And basically, when the community began in 1966, we had a mascot, a German Shepherd by the name of Kier. And uh, two years into the monastery, Kier passed away. And we felt the loss so deeply that he 
we just needed to replace Kier with, uh, with another German shepherd, obviously. Well, we wound up getting two uh, uh, breeding quality German shepherds. Uh, and what that led to was a suggestion by the breeder of those uh, shepherds to perhaps raise a puppy because in those days we were having a real challenge to support ourselves. Well, as it happened, uh, the two litters that those uh, females had proved to be uh, really wonderful uh, 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 puppies. We were able to sell them locally and we saw that there was a certain magic, certain enchantment that people experienced uh, with the idea of getting a puppy from uh, a monastery where it had been raised. Uh, and so we made the decision from that to have each brother uh, have a dog uh, that he could personally care for. And we could uh, expand the breeding program. Uh, and what lo and behold happened is a twofold thing. First, we, we found that the breeding program was quite successful. Uh, and then secondly, that Naturally, when you have a number of dogs under one roof, you have to make sure that they're all trained. And so uh, people who would come to the monastery would remark on how well-trained the, the dogs were. Uh, and from that, Brother Thomas, who was the initiator of the program, got the idea of establishing a, a board and train program for, uh, for like a three-week program. And so out of that came sort of the twofold training program as well as the breeding program. Uh, and, you know, after several years, um, we wound up uh, training a, uh, a German shepherd that was owned by an editor at Little Brown, who suggested that we write a book uh, with our own sort of unique approach and method, which we did, which turned out into How to Be Your Dog's Best Friend. When was and it published? That was published in 1977, 77-78 uh, in that area. And uh, uh, it it's actually still in print, still in hardcover uh, with Little Brown. And I think the last thing that any of us expected was that it was going to be a, a real successful book. And uh, the joke was on us because we thought we had really pulled one off on the publisher, but in fact, the book became increasingly popular. And I think what it spoke to was uh, something that was unique, something that perhaps we as monks were able to do, and that's to speak to the spiritual dimension that's present in the human-dog relationship without apology. You know, we weren't talking religion, we were talking more about that spiritual dimension that all people, regardless of their religious backgrounds, uh, experience with their dogs. And so I think that from that point, we, uh, we really just have continued to become more and more well-known in both uh, breeding German Shepherds, but then also training dogs of all breeds. How many are, monks are there in the monastery? Right now, there are eight of us, and we've always been a relatively small community, uh, but we also have three uh, sort of members in uh, uh, 
at the doorstep, so to speak, uh, fortunately. And so uh, uh, we're really happy to, uh, to be able to welcome them uh, in the next several months. So uh, probably after the first of the year, we'll number 11. And so how many German shepherds are generally kept with you at, at, at any one time? Generally speaking here right now in the monastery itself, we have eight. Uh, and But we also have shepherds that are placed locally that we have breeding rights to. We feel that it's really important for German shepherds to be properly socialized and uh, to have that sort of individual attention. Uh, and so uh, rather than trying to have a mass of shepherds here at the monastery, what we've tried to do is uh, keep the, uh, the numbers here at the monastery uh, modest, but then also uh, have uh, shepherds placed in local families that can be used in the breeding program. How large is New Skeet? City. The, the, the monastery itself, we were fortunate to be on a piece of property that's 500 acres. Oh, nice. It's primarily woodland and it's very, very beautiful. Uh, and the monastery is pitched right in the middle of the property. So uh, the, the local neighbors uh, bordering our property don't hear the barking of our dogs, uh, you know, and they're, they're very grateful for that, actually. It certainly looks beautiful. Let's bring Mark into the conversation. Mark, how'd you get hooked up with this? Well, I was sort of a child bride to the whole dog training industry myself because I, I got my first dog at the age of 11. And um, although, he, although he lived till I was not quite, but almost 30 years old, um, he got hit by a car when he was very young. And so my mother sent me off to dog school and in that era, this was in the very early 70s. And in that era, um, and uh, Jim, not that you're that old, but you might remember the fact that everybody went to dog school those days and competing in AKC events, it was very common. It's right. become kind of, a, of, a, of an old school thing now, unfortunately, but at the time it was common. And what I discovered was I had a very good dog. I had a very smart dog, a Sheltie, who cleaned up all the prizes and made me think I was a good dog trainer. So it took me a few more years to find out I had a good dog more than I was a good dog trainer, but I was absolutely bitten by the bug as so many of us were. And um, I quickly ran out of dog training opportunities there. We had no internet. <laughs> what we had back then was books and we had dog training clubs. And so I devoured the local club. I devoured all the books I could. And eventually I came across how to be your dog's best friend. And, um, and it really clicked for me because what that book did wasn't so much tell you how to make dogs do things. It taught, yes, it taught you how to train your dog. Yes, it did. Yes, it still does. But what it really spoke to was the reason that dogs want to work for us in the first place. And the reason that we feel this bond, this connection, this love for the dog and what we owe the dog so that we can fully realize the relationship between the human and the dog. And that just resonated hugely for me because I was always really fascinated, not so much about how to make dogs do things, but about what makes them tick. Why do they think the way they think? How can I understand them better? And that was just a, a complete passion of mine. And then long story short, brother Christopher and I ran into one another at a professional conference and 
the rest is history. We ended up uh, friends and compadres and training partners and eventually writing, you know, co-authors. You know, one of the things that we're seeing right now is many people are adopting dogs from shelters because they have more time at home. And um, we have a question already from a member of our audience. And this is something that I hear all the time since I have a purebred dog. Uh, wouldn't it be kinder to train rescue dogs than to breed and bring more dogs into the world? Uh, I'd like either one of you to respond to that. because I'd like to address that very quickly first, and then I'm going to throw it over to Brother Christopher. And uh, the first thing that I want to say about that is that I, I personally own three dogs right now. Um, and I haven't purchased a dog in, in decades. Um, two of my dogs are purebred dogs, and one of them is a mix, but all of them were rescues. One, a, a, a lovely, beautiful, well-bred German Shepherd was an owner give up. Things happened in their family. They were my client and they couldn't keep the dog. The owner of the Rat Terrier was a family member and she died and she asked me to foster the dog. She actually, she asked me to adopt it. And I said, no, I'll train her and place her. Two weeks later, that was my dog, my girl, you know? So, but, but what I wanna tell you is, the, there is nothing wrong. In fact, it's very important that somebody spend time remembering what were dogs originally developed for, and they were all working breeds. They were all, you know, that visual behind you, bred to go out there on the plains of Hungary and flush and retrieve birds. All dogs had a purpose. And it is only today when we have nothing but leisure time to give dogs that they can be unemployed. But somebody needs to really, um, and, I, and I'm a big rescue person. I do it. I believe it. I live it. But at the same time, I believe that somebody needs to be working very diligently to improve the genetics of purebred dogs so that we have a way of maintaining history and so that we have a way of keeping into the mix dogs who are bred for specific purpose. Mm -hmm. Because in your book, you do talk about how certain dogs are better. Collies for one thing, border collies for another, Vichelis for hunting. Well, we don't so much say one is better than the other. We just say a, bit, a little bit about what they're suited for and what, yeah, and what their instincts may lead them to do, right? So for example, um, a border collie is a lot likelier to look back constantly at the owner to see what's going on with you. Whereas a Vigila may have the sense that they want, you know, they see a tall grass, they want to leap right into it because there's probably birds in there. So understanding the mentality of that genetics helps you to offer the dog in trade for obedience, what it is that they most want. So understanding what motivates a dog is a good thing, but a pure, a purebred dog with good genetics, it's a thing of beauty. And I'm glad that somebody, I'm glad that somebody is doing it. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Brother Christopher, do you have anything to add on that point? Because it is yeah. here so often. I would just piggyback on that and say that it's not an either or. Uh, you know, naturally here at the monastery, while we're passionate about breeding German Shepherds and we have a real commitment to improving the quality of the breed, 
uh, you know, we've fallen in love with it. At the same time, that's expanded to dogs of all types, mixed breeds, as well as uh, we've trained innumerable rescues here at the monastery. And we try uh, in our work uh, to encourage uh, those types of attitudes, those types of uh, uh, commitments uh, to our dogs that can really uh, uh, expand the quality of life both in the owner and the dog. I think really the issue is educating uh, human beings so that they can be responsible dog owners. I think that there's room for uh, intelligent and passionate breeding. And I think that there's also room for uh, finding that wonderful rescue that you give a new lease on life to. Right. And also, I think sometimes you find people, I have a friend, uh, I think we'll see his dog in a minute, uh, that has only had rescues, uh, lab rescues. Um, and, you know, I think it's quite fine to focus on a breed because so often, and, and unfortunately with Vichelis, in fact, you're beginning to see more and more people get a Vichelis and not understand how much exercise they need. Right. And then they're being put in put in shelters. Do you take uh, dogs in for training and uh, ones that are outside of your own breeding program? We sure do. Uh, we've been doing that since 1969, and so you can imagine uh, here at the uh, the training center over the years. I've been here over 40 years. Uh, I can safely say I've probably trained most every breed that, uh, that you could think of. And uh, it's been a wonderful laboratory, as it were, to both observe uh, the beauty of dogs, uh, the diversity of dogs, and the different gifts and skills that uh, are sort of apparent in each breed. But we do train uh, a lot of dogs uh, each year, you know, probably well over a hundred. And so uh, uh, it, it's something that has been uh, a real privilege uh, to be a part of. I, I assume you have a long waiting list. For the, uh, for our puppies, yes. Uh, uh, what we've had to do is uh, twice a year, we have uh, a portal that opens on our website where people can apply uh, to get one of our, our dogs. We've had to do that because we found that the waiting list, uh, if it was just left open, would become basically uh, overkill. Uh, you know, it's not to. You got to enter the lottery to, to win to get one of these puppies. It's harder to get into this than the New York Marathon. <laughs> that they're going to have to wait, uh, you know, four years till they get their dog. So let me let me tell you: are they are they cute, alert, and intelligent? The the puppies there at the monastery—they're just lovely. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. I think that, Go ahead. I could just you know say one thing. I think part of that is because people. There are so many people who love German Shepherds and yet are cautious about uh, where they might get them because they realize that, you know, uh, if you don't get a good Shepherd, uh, you could be in for, you know, a, a little bit of a challenge. And I think that uh, our Shepherds, fortunately, uh, have a reputation of uh, 
really good temperaments. Uh, they're well-bred uh, and they've been thoroughly socialized by the time that they go out as eight-week-old puppies. So uh, we're, we're in a very, uh, very fortunate position. How do you vet the owners, the prospective owners? We have a, uh, uh, an application form that is not just simply an application form, but uh, also gives the owner the opportunity to describe their lifestyle, uh, whether they're elderly, for example, or whether they're young, uh, what is their activity level, uh, uh, what are their work hours, et cetera. Uh, and in being able to review the puppy applications we found over the years, it's, uh, it really helps to match particular puppies in each litter with the appropriate client. Uh, naturally, if we see an obvious, uh, uh, an obvious application that just isn't going to fit for a German Shepherd, we'll politely call the people and explain why we can't accept their application. But in general, uh, the, we're fortunate to draw from a pretty educated uh, clientele. And uh, within each litter, I think we've been pretty successful in uh, placing puppies in situations where they can thrive and flourish. We have a question from Carl. Mark, I think this is a good one for you. Is pampering a dog a bad thing? It's sometimes, he says, very difficult to maintain the relationship with a dog as a dog, rather than, as he says, a child. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's start with love. You, you can't love a dog too much. Love is a good thing. You, you cannot have too deep of a commitment for a dog. That being said, uh, for the relationship to really flourish as, to the profound level that it could fully reach, you do need to respect what the dog is and what the dog isn't. And the first thing that the dog isn't is human. <laughs> they aren't human. You cannot speak to them in English to explain to them, look, let me explain to you. Traffic is bad and it's dangerous. This door is your barrier. You know, it's your life safety network, right? This is your lifeline, your seatbelt. Don't run through this door because there's cars on the other side. That electrical cord over there, yeah, I wouldn't chew through that because bad things are going to happen if you do so, right? You, you can't tell them this. So what you have to do is you have to, well, if people want to think of dogs as their fur babies, then I think that we should step forward as parents before we become grandparents, <laughs> right? The parent's job, I, I raised three children and I'll tell you what, I feel like my first job was to make help these children become self-sufficient, good contributing members of society to help educate them on how to stay safe and uh, how to stay out of jail and to, you know, and to have fulfilling lives, right? Um, now, I'm gonna be a grandfather uh, this year and I can't wait to have a little kid to spoil and when it's naughty, just hand it back to somebody else to do the discipline. I did that already. Yeah. But, but who would have done it for my children if not me and if not my wife, right? So guys, you cannot love a dog too much. But part of love is uh, helping your dog do his homework, get his shots, do his dentistry, all the things that we had to do as children that our parents did for us. In so. a few minutes, I want to get start talking about your book because I really found it very helpful. And as you might imagine, I, uh, I have a lot of dog books. 
but here's a question, uh, Brother Christopher, that I was getting ready to pose. And it, this is worded very well, so let me read the whole question. My husband um, trained Dobermans in the 1970s, and they bought a Wamaraner in the early 80s. Then the breed became popular. And we noticed that the years as breeds became popular, Cocker Spaniels, Labs, uh, and German Shepherds. They didn't put in German Shepherds, but obviously I will here. There was a lot of inbreeding to preserve the line and it created genetic disabilities. We know about hip dysplasia. How do you prevent that at your monastery? Basically what we do is uh, for many years, we've naturally studied good breeding techniques, okay? If we do what we call line breedings, which is a limited type of uh, uh, breeding that is where uh, sire and dam are related, okay, we do so very carefully, but we also periodically refresh our program with uh, outcrossings, you know, with uh, dogs that introduce new lines. Naturally, we're also extremely conscious about breeding only dogs that, uh, who's within German Shepherd especially, uh, it's very important that hips and elbows be radiographically certified, okay, as acceptable uh, to be breeding quality. So we won't breed a dog whose hips have not been approved. We actually take our x-rays and send them to Germany to the SV because we feel that uh, the SV is actually more rigorous and has a, has a sort of a clearer understanding of the structure of German Shepherds. And so we, we have them evaluated there and sent back. If a dog doesn't pass uh, in terms of its x-rays, uh, basically what will happen is we'll place it in a wonderful home and they will get an outstanding pet, uh, but we won't use it for breeding. And you have to wait for two years before you can do the OFA test? The hip in Germany, they ask uh, for it to be done in a year, okay? And we've had very good luck with that. The OFA is uh, two years. In Germany, it's uh, one year. But uh, naturally, that helps us out as breeders because we can make a clearer determination uh, more quickly. Uh, but we also, I can say, have found that the, uh, uh, the evaluations have been extremely accurate and you know, we haven't had any problems. And so as a breeding program, we have a, a very good record. You can't totally eliminate uh, uh, hip dysplasia, for example, from the breed, there's a certain amount uh, of uh, uh, dysplasia that is going to crop up. But what you can do is all in your power to breed only dogs which have really high quality hips and elbows and who are lacking any other uh, medical problem like von Willebrand's disease or you know anything like that. Well, let's talk for a minute about the book, because I don't think you meant for it to be controversial, but in a sense it is, because the art of training your dog how to gently teach good behavior using an e-collar. And up front, I've learned how to use an e-collar with my trainer, 
Um, and the e-collar, for those of you who are not familiar, it's essentially what used to be called a shock collar. And uh, Petco recently took the collars, uh, stopped selling them. The Humane Society of the United States says shock collars are often misused and can create fear and aggression in your dog towards you or other animals. While they may suppress unwanted behavior, they do not teach a dog what you would like them to do instead and therefore should not be used. Again, I think they have a very good purpose and obviously you do. So I'm not sure which one of you would like to begin talking about that, but uh, please go ahead. Well, let, let me kick off with this, with the following notion. The whole e-collar thing is very confusing. And as for consumers, it's extremely confusing, but the manufacturers are telling us that about 1 million units are being sold per year, okay? So about a million, what, what we call e-collars are being sold per year. It's very important therefore that the consumer understand what constitutes a good e-collar and what constitutes a bad one. And believe me, there are, four, there are far more inadequate ones on the market than there are good ones. So basically, Jim, here's the problem. The genie is out of the bottle. Dog training was never gonna stand still because technology had, has advanced incredibly far. When I was 11, 12, 13, 14, back in the early 70s, there were e-collars back then, but they were brutal. They had no place in, in modern dog training. But look at what happened from 1970 to 2020. Oh, and let's explain, I mean, they were truly shock collars with yeah. or very high level. Well, the, here's the reality of it. What we call shock is electricity that passes through the body. And you can buy that kind of collar, um, but they're awful. And they're, they have no place in dog training. They have no place in, in, in animal husbandry whatsoever. Um, think cattle prod, okay? But I want you to think for a moment about a TENS unit. If you've ever been to a doctor or a physical therapist, if you had a TENS unit, which is where they place electrical pads on you and they feed a little bit of electrical stimulation into your muscles to contract and release the muscle gently and, and that is used therapeutically. Um, those things are being sold right now over the counter in uh, drugstores all over the country. Or if you've seen the commercial for get abs without doing sit-ups and you see the guy with the pads all over his belly, that's the type of electricity that is being used in a very few, but very good, easily obtainable e-collars. It is medical grade electricity that passes only a couple few millimeters into the skin. So it is a vastly different sensation than what you would call a shock collar. Okay, the, 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 the products that we evaluate in the book, we, we, it's such an important conversation that we wrote an entire chapter on how to choose an e-collar. Because if you don't choose a good one, there is no way to gently train your dog with it. But we're talking about equipment that you can put in your hand and we can push the button on the level that the dog uses. And we can do that over and over and over and over again. And maybe you won't even feel it. It's very extraordinary. So how do we know that this can be done gently with super happy dogs? Because we developed it that way. And we've been, we've been doing it for what, what, what is it, Brother Christopher, about 15 years now with this methodology? Yeah, together, certainly 15 years, but you've even doing it, uh, I, I would say, what, 25, 25 Well, years? no, I don't think e-collars even got, they didn't even start to get decent until about 1999. So here's, the, so here, here's really been the challenge. E-collars got good 
or let's, let's say that e-collar, decent e-collars became available, but then they were mixed in. Um, and so you're really searching for the needle with a haystack. That's the problem right now is which e-collar should you get? Number one. Number two, let's say you happen to get a good one. Just because you have a good piece of technology doesn't mean you know how to use it. I mean, what if you gave a, a kid, a 16-year-old kid, here's the keys to your new car on your 16th birthday. Go, go with God. <laughs> you need lessons. Mark, you, you haven't mentioned when you talk about the different levels of uh, um, electricity or, or whatever we're going to call it. Uh, you also have the vibration and the sound. Yeah, that's right. So take an example, whether it be a, a recall, for instance, having your dog come. Just walk us through how you might uh, use the e-collar. And, and, and that'll give our viewers an opportunity to see uh, the different exercises that you're having your book, whether it be yeah. the sit or the stay or, or whatever. Well, let, let's start with the following notion. In order to answer your question, I'm not pivoting. I promise you I'm going to address recall. No, just go ahead and that. pivot if, you, if there's a better example. Well, because here's the thing. It is, it is a very natural assumption to make that you would use the e-collar to teach a specific exercise or to penalize the dog, even worse. It's a natural assumption to say, well, you'd punish the dog or you know, do something to the dog if they don't do what you tell them to do. I wanna reframe the conversation real quick as follows. In our human culture, we understand if your buddy taps you on the shoulder, that has cultural significance. And what this means is, hey, I wanna tell you something. That's all it means. Um, now, your buddy isn't you know, hitting you in the shoulder with a hammer or stabbing you with a screwdriver. You're not hurting you. It's a light touch. So let's say for a moment that you're walking down the street with, in conversation with your friend, but you're momentarily distracted, but it's the place where you wanna turn. Right, so your friend might tap you on the shoulder, you look to see what's up, and then you realize, oh, this is where we need to turn. <clears throat> the tap on the shoulder in human language means I want to tell you something. So what Brother Christopher and I have done in the art of training your dog is to create a system where we teach the dog from the very, very earliest of the really sequential lessons. When you feel that little tap, which feels so benign, so small, that you might not even need to explain to the owner as the dog that you felt that it. it's such a small little feeling. But what we teach the dog is what it means is I want to tell you something. And we do that in the most obvious way that we know how, which is we started with about turns. Because as an old dog trainer yourself, Jim, what you know is if the dog is forging, the traditional move for the trainer to make move, counter move, point, counterpoint, about turn, because it helps to refocus the dog on the direction that you're taking. So all we do is we don't, we don't do anything harsh. We just touch the button as we make the about turn. And within literal moments of the first session, the average dog is look at you, looking at you right when you push the button and go, we're turning, right? <laughs> and then you praise them and you turn. And that's how we find the level that the dog can feel. So it starts, Jim, with the notion that we're communicating to the dog, I want to tell you something. And that's that's literally how we start. Engine getting. Now you talk about the different levels. There's education level, there's reinforcement, right? Yes, that's and right. Correction. Uh, and, how well, we don't call it that. We do call it interruption level. Interruption. Because the word correction sounds like the word, well, in, in, in our language today, correction sounds like punishment. But what we, the only thing we ever really need to do with a dog who fully understands its commands is if it's so distracted that it didn't hear the command is we just need to interrupt the distraction. So if a dog is looking, staring at a bird and literally doesn't hear you when you say, come, 
Um, all we need to do is to interrupt the dog's focus on the distraction and refocus that dog just as we started with lesson one, which is, hey, I wanna tell you something. You know, I think another point that might be helpful is even if your dog is really well-trained, if you're taking a hike or going where a loose, uh, loose uh, leash, um, especially outside in the woods, it's a good safety device to have an e-collar. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that to just follow up on that, most people uh, have the conception that the e-collar is used at the end of the ordinary training process to proof a dog. And from that standpoint, it's used more as a punisher, okay? Whereas Mark just explained, we're using it right at the very beginning of the training process in a very low, gentle level uh, in a way that the dog can really understand to communicate meaningfully with the dog. So by establishing uh, a very solid foundation that is in conjunction with the dog really enjoying the training process, okay, then you put into place the possibility of meaningfully communicating with the dog or interrupting its behavior when, for example, the dog gets distracted with a deer that, let's say, jumps out of nowhere, uh, dogs being predators, naturally that's going to be something that elicits a response from the majority of them. With the foundation that the dog has had, it's so much easier at a much lower level to interrupt that unwanted focus and redirect the dog's uh, focus back to us. And given the fact that they've understood by that time what a recall means, you just bring the dog right back. Uh, I know this is something that here at the monastery, as I, you know, we live on 500 acres uh, and most of it is woodland. We have deer, we have bear, not to mention just ordinary rabbits and squirrels. And so it's not at all uncommon for uh, on a hike in the woods or, or even a hike down the road uh, for one of our shepherds to see a rabbit, for example, or a deer. You know, deer are very plentiful on our property. I think that they sense that, uh, you know, we don't allow hunting on our property. So I think that they sense that it's a safe, <laughs> safe place. Uh, but naturally, the dogs are triggered by uh, a quick darting deer, uh, and it's just has made the walk so much more enjoyable, so much less stressful to know that I can very easily redirect the dog's focus back to me uh, in a way that uh, avoids all sorts of drama. I'd just like to interject, too, that we have calculated out a system here to integrate food the best of food training uh, in with what we do. So there are moments in time when we're rewarding with food. Dogs remember that, they enjoy this process. So um, I can tell you this much, we don't, we don't have to make any apologies for the training system in, uh, in this book. Dogs will enjoy it. You should never see your dog in any form of discomfort during the training process that we're doing here. You, what you should see is a dog who really is enjoying his day. We make the point about recall with food. We use food luring for the recall and the sit. Um, and we don't really combine that with e-collar unless and until the dog is looking away from us when we want to call the dog, at which point, hey, I wanna tell you something. The dog has learned to turn around, make eye contact. That's the point at which we give the hand signal. 
which by the way, contains food, bring the dog into our space, reward for the, for the, for the, for the recall. At first with food, then randomly, then it's just praise and food gets faded away. But um, we start that process from two or three feet away and eventually from two or 300 feet away, all within six weeks. Well, let's, let's bring in Laura Helper, excuse me, Helper. My mother-in-law has a wonderful German shepherd that she got from a shelter. The one issue is that the dog loves to lick people hello on the face and hands. What's wrong with that? <laughs> I'm okay with one or two licks, but this dog keeps on licking excessively. It's, it's a little slow. Why she might be doing this and how can she be trained not to lick? Okay, one of the, uh, the commands that uh, we teach in the program uh, in a very organic and natural way is the command leave it, which means ignore that or you know stop that. Uh, we're not using no, we're just simply uh, assuming the right to give permission to either pay attention to something or to ignore something. And so uh, in the book, what we sort of describe is a very, very progressive and logical way to help the dog understand that when we give the command, leave it, uh, that we're confident that they will ignore the particular thing that has focused their attention and uh, uh, redirect their focus back to us. Uh, we have a, an anonymous attendee. What is the most common mistake you see when it comes to behavioral training? Well, I, I'll, I'll take a quick shot at this, Chris, and then, and then you can follow up. I, I think that people either tend to be overly permissive, right? Which is to say they, they want to train 100% with cookies and treats, which by the way, is precisely how you start a puppy, right? This is exactly how we start a puppy. But there comes a point when you have an adolescent dog and um, too many people are being sold a bill of goods that you can fix everything with cookies. And the problem is, is that for your dog to reach his full potential, he might like to go hiking in the woods someday. He might like to go to a dog park, but you know, and run free to play, to be a dog. But for that to be safe, you need a very positive, very strong, reliable recall off of distractions. Even if you live in the city to make sure that if your dog should slip off the leash or if you drop it, that your dog will turn around and come back when you call. So I think some people select dog training that's just overly um, food oriented. And on the other hand, I think other people maybe go to, to the extreme in the other direction, which is they are impatient. You, you do need a bit of patience, but, um, but if you do the right things, the average dog in very short order will be well-behaved. Dogs are willing to make changes much faster than people are. I've always told friends that if you make an investment of a year or two years with your dog, you'll have just the most, the best friend ever. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that certainly has been our experience. I mean, uh, a number of years ago, we wrote, uh, a book called The Art of Raising a Puppy in uh, the early 1990s. And one of the uh, counsels that we uh, offered in the book was precisely that. These first months of a dog's life between let's say uh, the time it's born and eight to nine months of age are so critical. And that if an owner ODs, overdoses on uh, conscientiousness in 
both socializing and training the dog, they're going, the payoff with that is going to be enormous because you'll be able to spend the next 10 to 15 years uh, really enjoying a relationship that uh, is sort of realizing the dream that you had when you got the puppy in the first place. Jim, you're an old obedience trainer, so I bet you've heard the phrase train, don't complain. <laughs> exactly. Well, one of the things too, you know, how do people sometimes ask me, how do I find time to work with my dog and train my dog? And it's as simple as like, if you're making your coffee in the morning, yeah. it, just to take that time to have your dog stay, make when you're feeding the dog, make that a fun time to do various exercises. Yeah, we thought we think that concept is so important that in the art of training your dog, we actually start the lessons essentially in your kitchen. We start them in, in you know, in the home, and the uh, in the first couple of days, the average lesson, the duration of it is three to five minutes. So, of course, Mark, I love the way you yeah. keep on saying that I'm an old dog trainer. But I <laughs> well. <laughs> we ha I have very few peers. I'm looking for look. I'm looking for friends. Kirsten has a, a a good question. Is it ever too late to train a dog? Can you teach a dog an old dog new tricks? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think both Mark and I have had experiences where we've had dogs that, for various reasons, have come into our board and train programs. Uh, I mean, I remember within the past year, I've trained a dog that was eight and a half years old, another one that was nine. Uh, in one of those cases, uh, the owners were having to relocate to England and they had never really formally trained the dog. The, you know, they lived on uh, a farm and so they had just sort of gotten by, but they were going to be uh, moving to London in England, and as it happened, there was a park directly across from where they were uh, going to be living. The park was uh, dog friendly, but the dogs had to be really well behaved, which meant that the dog would have to have a very reliable recall, number one, and also be sociable with other dogs. Well, they really hadn't had the opportunity uh, to have their dog formally trained. And so they inquired, uh, would that be possible? And I said, sure. And uh, as it happened, you know, the dog did exceedingly well in the, in the training program. It's true, when the dog came in, the dog really didn't have an awful lot of formal understanding, but uh, it was a dog that picked up very quickly. And fortunately, at you know, several months uh, after we had reunited them with the owners, I got a, a postcard from uh, London, England, saying everything is great. Thanks so much. Uh, so that was with uh, an eight and a half, year, <laughs> eight and a half year old uh, mixed breed. That's a great story. And uh, Helen, uh, I did not read your question, but uh, will uh, is eighteen months too old to train a dog, uh, a beagle mix? So I think we've answered that. Katie has a, a really timely. Uh, a concern. She writes, we have a one-year-old rescue that we adopted when she was three months old. She's a German Shepherd blue tick hound mix. We were off to a very good start training uh, before the pandemic, but then everything shut down. It became difficult to socialize her and she's become aggressive around strangers, not other dogs. We'd appreciate any suggestions to help her. Well, if I may, at the risk of sounding like an advertisement for our book, the, the probably the most important thing that you can do uh, 
is to take her out into the world. When, that, when the pandemic hit, what so many of us did was we cocooned at home and we did so under advisement and fearfully and, and it was a very stressful time. And not only that, when we did go out, I don't know about you guys, but when we went out mask or no mask, you encountered other people, it was a small shock to the system. And so if you were on a sidewalk, you might quick hustle to the other side. And it, it, our own nervousness, I think, might have communicated to our dogs, to a certain extent, stranger danger, which wasn't our intention, but we were on high alert. Well, unfortunately, we're all getting a little bit used to the realities of this pandemic now, and I think we have a slightly better handle on how to deal with ourselves in public, right? So my advice is put a mask on, get out there, walk your dog, um, and if you need to teach your dog leash manners and to avoid focusing overly on distractions, in this case, other people, but it could be anything, could be rabbits, could be squirrels, could be other dogs. Just teach your dog good leash manners, good focus, and your dog will quickly give up that aggression. But the most important part is for you to develop the confidence that you've got this, that you can do this, that you can lead your dog. And um, that's why we call the, the centerpiece of our methodology in the book, we call it the purposeful walk the purposeful walk. So we can teach you how to walk with purpose in such a way as your dog will eventually go, eh, I'm too busy to mess with you. I'm with her. And, and that, that really is- And I stress that that is not formal obedience healing. This is really a walk where the dog gets to enjoy being outside and you That's get right. to relax. And... Yeah, correct. You know, I mean, I think that go ahead. one of the, one of the ex expressions that we use here, uh, because we all know at least those who have been formally involved in dogs and in obedience competition, we know what a formal heel looks like where the dog's attention is riveted on the handler. And it's a thing of beauty in an obedience competition, but really, uh, I mean, how realistic is to think uh, that we're going to expect the dog to be doing that on its daily walk uh, in Manhattan, for example. And you would- Right, and so what we, uh, one of the expressions that both of us use is walking calmly and politely on the leash, which means that the dog is thoroughly under control. Now, getting to that, and particularly with respect to the question that was asked, okay, may take a uh, you know, certain amount of practice and sort of like getting into a hot bath, you know, doing so progressively. You don't want to flood or overwhelm the dog before the dog is prepared to deal with, uh, with let's say, a distraction that it can handle. But at the same time, I think that you'll find uh, in the book, we really have bent over backwards to try and sequentially lead the reader and their dog through uh, through a very logical and, uh, and doable program that can face, let's say, increasing distractions successfully. Now, granted, there are going to be some dogs who have real challenges. And I mean, let's not, you know, uh, try and downplay that. Uh, there are going to be dogs that, you know, let's say, have more serious behavior issues. In that case, we would sort of encourage an owner to supplement uh, the information that they're reading in our book, perhaps with the help or assistance of 
uh, a professional who is comfortable with uh, this approach, this type of an approach, and who can coach and guide the owner through that, you know, let's say, uh, difficult challenge uh, that they happen to be experiencing. And wouldn't you say that you really don't want to delay uh, reaching out to a professional? That's correct. The quicker, the better. You know, uh, it, it, this seems like an okay time for me to just make a quick interjection. Jim, we're doing something a little bit unique with this book. Um, we, we have a website, which is the same as the name of the book. It's theartoftrainingyourdog.com. From that website, you can certainly learn more about the book, more about the authors. But, but from, that, from, that, from that website, you can also navigate to a Facebook group that we have set up. It's a free Facebook group where you can post videos and questions. And then based on the knowledge that we share in the book, you can actually get a, additional guidance from a community of dog owners and dog trainers, including the authors. So um, yes, we wanted to provide really detailed training instructions, but we understand that some situations are a little um, more challenging than others. So if you were to uh, look for our uh, website, theartoftrainingyourdog.com, click the button to get into the, into the Facebook group. I'm sure we could help you even more there. Well, um, I, I need to ask this question because it's my fellow Vishla owner, Scott. Uh, my Vishla Shiner loves to hunt, but hates the sound of gunfire. I've tried a number of methods, all carefully without success. My first hunting dog, which I introduced very slowly and carefully, never had a problem. What's the best way for him? Boy, to that's a hunt? tough question. Okay, that is a tough question. And let me tell you a story. Uh, naturally, there have been times when we've had dogs here uh, at the monastery that uh, let's say we wanted to test them for police work. And one of the tests is whether or not the dog was gun shy. Okay. Now, uh, honestly, in my own experience, I've seen this happen a couple of times where uh, a, a very well-balanced and, and well-mannered uh, German shepherd uh, is in a field and uh, let's say a person with a gun is maybe 25 yards away and sticks the gun up in the air and fires the gun. And the dog just winds up circling uh, rapidly. I mean, involuntarily, okay? Uh, they call it a gun shy dog, okay? And naturally, from the police officers that I've experienced, but also what I've seen with my own eyes, it's, uh, it's not a training issue. It's, it's sort of a, an issue that relates to, uh, to something that is involuntary in the dog system and the dog can't help but responding. I'm not sure if that's what this gentleman is talking about, but based on my own experience with German Shepherds who have been tested for gun shy, I mean, you know, uh, other, the majority of shepherds where I've seen that done, you know, they, you know, they, they might initially sort of manifest a little bit of a, uh, an ounce of concern, but they quickly are, you know, are fine with it. They can be easily conditioned with it. Whereas the gun shy dog, uh-uh. So, but if you've got a dog, you're, let's not, I don't want to say you're stuck with this dog, but you have this dog already. You love this dog. 
Uh, but yet you had this dream of hunting with this dog and you're having a problem. The only thing that I, I would say at this point might be to, um, well, a lot of guys make the mistake is they take the dog to the hunt club, you know, and then the first encounter that it has with a gun is from 25 yards away as Brother Christopher just said. But what I might be more inclined to do would be to park the car, just pull over about a half a mile before the gun club. You know, if you don't have a gun club, then go find a range, talk to the owner. You want to park about a half to a quarter mile away, pull the dog out and start working with a wing, start working with some scent, start working some retrieves. It's all super casual. You just want the dog to get used to it. Start bringing that dog in for some food treats, which is not a big gun dog thing, but you're looking to decondition and desensitize a dog to a sound that he doesn't like, that he's afraid of. You want to turn that into happy anticipation, which is exactly what the gun, what the gun dog owners want. And then um, I wouldn't move any closer than that half mile point uh, on subsequent visits until that dog was completely. Uh, and I haven't found very many beach lists that aren't food driven, so that might be a good way to way but, to do. Uh, yeah, I think if you took a month and every day you got like you know twenty yards closer from a half a mile out, you, you know, within a month or two, we have your just dog will be another minute or two. Um, let me ask you, in, in your book, The Art of Training Your Dog, which is, of course, available at, in Terabang Books and elsewhere, how much time do people need to devote to training their dog if they want to have a good pet? Well, we're laying out a six-week program. Um, so you should be training daily for six weeks. We give you a daily planner so that we tell you exactly what to do every day for those six weeks. And um, it starts out where, you know, maybe your daily commitment's going to be 20 minutes and it finishes up where your daily commitment might be a, a, a whopping total of 40 to 45 minutes in a couple of segments. And that can be broken up in the, in the various sessions. Yes. It is, yeah, we, 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 we very highly suggest that it is broken up over several sessions, but basically- I just want to stress how well-written this book is and organized. And I love all the photos that you did with the description. So anybody who's looking to, to train their dog, whether it's a puppy that they've just gotten that's seven or eight weeks old or a rescue that's two years old, I think you'll, you'll find the, the book very helpful. And it will really answer any questions that you have about an e-collar. Um, but I, I would just counsel, if you have any questions about an e-collar, please jump on your Facebook group so that we don't have people making mistakes. I'd like to end with Anne's question, if I may. How do you explain that dogs read our emotions so well they often seem to pick up on our thoughts and feelings before we do. Brother, okay, I'll jump in. Question for you to close our program. Dogs are by nature innately uh, conditioned to paying precise attention to their environment, not only to other dogs uh, in their immediate pack, but also as predators, you know, noticing everything. Now, uh, in the millennia since humans and dogs have been uh, companions and you know related with each other, dogs read us like a book. Okay, they've transferred the gifts, the natural gifts that they have, uh, just simply as canines, uh, into the relationship, and they are able. Uh, to really pay attention to the slightest movement and, and body language message that we may be given even unconsciously uh, in ways that can leave us astonished and amazed. What this has tended to do over the years is uh, cement the bond between 
owner and dog in a way that I just can say it outright, leaves most owners deeply, deeply touched, which is why when a dog passes away, it's such a traumatic experience because on so many levels, uh, I think we as human beings have rarely experienced the type of unconditional love and affection that a dog offers us, uh, you know, free of charge. Well, I, I just want to say how much I've enjoyed our conversation. I admire the work that you, you do. And I, I do want to encourage our, our viewers to uh, take a look at your book. I hope you'll be able to pick up a copy. And if you have any friend that has a new puppy, this would be a wonderful gift. Um, again, thank you so much, gentlemen. And uh, stay safe. Thanks for watching.